Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with design researcher and data scientist, Pamela Pavlicek. Pamela talks about the relationship between data, design, and intuition, and how designing for happiness is good for people and business. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Mary Tressler. Today, I'm here with Pamela Pavlicek, design researcher, data scientist, and founder of Change Sciences. Pamela, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mary. I'd like to start off with um, you sharing a little bit about your work and how you arrived at where you're at today. Well, so I, like a lot of people, I think I didn't start with technology. I started studying Russian, (laughs) obviously, right? (laughs) Natural starting point. (laughs) And you would think that the two had no relationship, but living abroad for a good long while. And I lived in St. Petersburg and even, you know, went to Siberia and Kazakhstan and all kinds of places. What I learned from that kind of life-changing experience is I spent a lot of time having conversations with new people and conversations that were mostly listening because it was interesting to learn from the people I met and because my Russian wasn't that great. (laughs) So, (laughs) and that has served me well in the technology field. I mean, later on when I switched over, I felt like, you know, technology had a lot of promise to improve lives and I was fascinated with how those changes would affect people. So I studied human-computer interaction, and I'm just a little obsessed with our conflicted relationship that we have with technology. So I've been doing that for about 15 years, Um, started Change Sciences about 10 years ago to do just that. And before that, I was working in agencies. But I feel like the researcher in me is always on. You know, I travel a lot and everywhere I go, I'm observing people in a hopefully non-creepy stalker kind of way. (laughs) I I like to think of myself as more like a William White kind of observational (laughs) person than that. Um, Although sometimes people do notice what I'm doing and, and then we have a great chat. So, you know, so that's one part of it, the design research piece. And I think, you know, lately that's kind of motivated me to explore data in a more serious way and look at bigger data sets. Um, That really comes from that same kind of curiosity about people and technology and what do they do on their own? And we have this amazing new window into human behavior. It's a little like bubble glass, right? Because it's distorted. So it hasn't replaced other types of research for me, but it's, but it's added to it. So So, tell me about the work of, of change sciences. I'm, I'm curious what kind of work you do with companies. Well, we work with a lot of different companies, and we're really focused on research and strategy. So what that amounts to is helping companies understand their customers, their prospects in new ways. And we kind of have an open approach. You know, we we try to choose the right um, research focus to answer the questions that they have or to discover things. So that can range from, you know, ethnographic kinds of research to um, good old usability testing, to Mm -hmm. social listening, kind of, kind of the range of learning about people, whether it's big data or um, small qualitative studies. Okay, great. So you, I mean, you have a unique position in that your, um, your background is, is both, well, on, on top of the Russian studies, um, <laughs> part design and part data. And I'm curious from your unique perspective, how you define design. It's interesting because I think 
design is, is kind of these two worlds in a way. It's really big. It's mm-hmm. how people try to shape our experience of the world and the people around us. And at the same time, design is this really small thing. It's all those little details that, you know, either make us really happy or drive us crazy. And of course, we all know anyone working in the design world, you know, we're constantly redesigning everything in our heads. <laughs> we're, we're kind of caught in the middle of all of it. And it's, you know, it's thrilling and it's full of possibility, but it also can be a little scary too. And so for me, I, I feel like design is kind of that balance of small pleasures and higher purpose. Mm, great. That's a great explanation. I, you know, it is interesting because you hear people talk all the time about, um, well, you know, there's so many variations on how you can describe design, um, but it is, it is the big and the small. Um, and, and, you know, further to that, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the relationship that you see between data and design and the designer. Um, specifically, uh, there are a lot of designers that are starting to learn a little bit more about data or would like to start using data to inform some of their decisions. Um, and I'm curious to know about a few, a couple of specific questions. Are there times when data should be ignored? Um, and when do you trust your gut over what you're, you're finding in the data or do you? Well, that, that's a really good question. It's sort of this tension. You know, we like to think in dichotomies, you know, mm-hmm. it's either data or intuition. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but I, <laughs> I think that data offers this kind of new opportunity to learn about people. And I think of it more like archaeology. So mm-hmm. it's not about, you know, archaeology is not always about finding the big celebrities or what mm-hmm. the important heroes and personalities of history do. It's about learning more about the everyday practices of people. And so you have these clues, these traces left behind. And like archaeology, the science gets more sophisticated. Archaeologists have remote sensing and, and x-ray guns, and data scientists <laughs> have algorithms and AI. Right. Um, you know, but the big difference is these people are still around <laughs> that we're learning about with data science. So we can learn about them in their own words and rely on them to share their feelings and their context. So for me, it's not really an either or, but more of kind of an improv, you know, yes, and kind of relationship. Hmm. You know, we've got this data giving us a new perspective on what people do on their own. And that's fascinating. You have research, design research that creates this fuller picture of the story. I think our gut is really our perspective, right? And that's shaped by what we've observed. So the more you feed your curiosity, your perspective, the better your instincts will be. So I don't think, I I can't really see like exchanging one for the other. Right, right. They're totally intertwined. That makes perfect sense. Um, You speak at at a number of conferences and one of the talks that you give is around designing for happiness. I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about what that that is. That's a big topic. (laughs) (laughs) For me, choosing to work in technology came out of this kind of optimism that technology can make our relationships, our experience better in some way. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I mean, I think in a way technology might be an inherently optimistic enterprise, Mm -hmm. at least the way we think of it today. But day after day, I would hear all these stories about how technology makes us miserable. You know, it's wrecking our posture. It's ruining our vision. (laughs) It's damaging our sleep. Our relationships are fraught. We're unhappy on social media. We're distracted, you know, all these terrible things. And of course, when you work in technology, 
and people know this about you, you get to hear everyone's complaints. So because people think you can fix it, right? And and maybe we should be able to fix it all in some way. And so I started feeling kind of depressed, like I'm ruining people's lives instead of making them better. Right. And so I would get these glimmers of hope when I was speaking with people and on research projects. And at the time that I was starting to feel all this, I was working on a big research project for a client about our emotional connection to technology. And I was talking to a group of young women, um, their cousins and friends, and they all knew each other. And after this kind of lengthy show and tell session where they would, you know, show what they were doing on their phones and talk about their feelings, you know, one of the women, Danielle, turned to me and she said aloud, probably what we were all thinking. She goes, I feel like it's taking over my life, but it's making my life at the same time. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That does kind of sum up this, this conflict. And so I began, I guess, my own kind of happiness project. And because it was my project, it involved like watching people use their technology, scouring social media data, having all these conversations, eating a lot of Swedish fish, <laughs> creating visualizations and tagging, you know, lots of tagging of data. <laughs> and so, you know, this is, that was sort of the start of it. And then what happened is I thought, well, okay, what are my research questions here? And I had two main ones. The first one was, you know, does happiness even matter? It's such a broad topic, a broad category. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there's still so much to learn. But at the time, um, you know, my team at Change Sciences, we were creating a data set about kind of a large number of sites mm -hmm. and, um, you know, kind of looking out to the future and seeing what, what we could learn about that. And because of my interest in this, I was able to sneak in couple questions about happiness among all the others about like ease of use and engagement and conversion. And I didn't think about it for a while. And then when I came back to it, after we had the data back, I realized what we were seeing was pretty extraordinary hmm. is that when people felt happy using a site, they explored, they tried more things, they wanted to return. They were more likely to recommend. So in other words, happiness was connected with these other positive outcomes. And, you know, that's not unique. After we found that, of course, after the fact, I, <laughs> I decided, well, maybe I, I wonder if other people are, are learning this. And I didn't, didn't hear of anything in technology. But, you know, you just pick up an issue of Harvard Business Review or read it online. I don't really pick up paper <laughs> issues of anything anymore, do I? Um, and you'll find that, you know, happier employees are more productive and they find more meaning in their work at the same time. Even way back to the 80s, I found some research on product attachment and found that like happiness and brand attachment were somehow linked together. So that was one big question. So I, I feel like happiness is important. We should think about it more. But what does that even mean? You know, mm -hmm. that was sort of the next question. Does, can we separate out special things that make us happy about technology or is it the same things? I mean, there's all these models of happiness. There's Martin Seligman's PERMA. There's mm -hmm. Riff's um, subjective well-being scale. There's Maslow's hierarchy, which, of course, we all know by heart. <laughs> Countries are applying this, you know, uh, happiness initiatives to kind of supplement their GDP and, you know, we're learning more about this through behavioral economics, different models. For instance, we know that 
we can go out and get the latest Apple TV <laughs> that we all saw yesterday. And that's going to make us really happy in the short term. But it's also going to wear off because we get sick of the things that once made us right. happy. And there's some, you know, so there's all this research that we can draw on to understand it. But I didn't find a lot out there that was really looking at those moments. And so the next phase of my research was a big diary study where I had people over a certain period of time capture their kind of highs and lows with technology. And this went through a couple iterations because in some cases I had them just do highs and kind of try to isolate some of the emotions, Mm -hmm. the positive emotions. But what came out of that was really interesting. I always suspected that delight, you know, that concept that we have in design wasn't the full story what made people happy. Those small moments, those small pleasures certainly factor in, but it really seemed that the patterns fell into this kind of deeper meaning, right? So I would see people for like humans of New York. Mm. It's the happiest sight in the world for people. Right. (laughs) And not in the sense that it's showing happy things, but because it makes people feel connected. Mm. It's connected to a story and it's to a story that's not complete. There's still room for them. You know, and so those are the kind of moments that came out or, or other types of sites like, um, you know, Mint and the feeling of kind of mastery that people had using that over their finances versus how doing it before. And so certainly this, this idea of delight and, and kind of these little moments of pleasure factored in, but there were also these bigger picture moments and they kind of boiled down to, to just a few things, really trust, autonomy creativity and connection are, are really kind of the biggest ones there. And so now I'm, I'm sort of in a third phase exploring like, well, I don't think there's a formula, but mm-hmm. what patterns can we see and how can we use that to design toward happiness? Because, you know, that's everyone's personal goal is happiness. But if it also leads to positive outcomes for businesses, it's, it's kind of a win-win. And it feels in a lot of ways more ethical than, than some of what's going on right now in behavioral design, right? Where we're, we're using all of our powers, all of our knowledge about neuroscience to persuade and nudge people. Wouldn't it be great if we could just make them happy? And then the outcome would be good for business as well. Right. So, that's kind of the the long story. It's yeah. an awesome story. Well, I'm I'm interested to see where you go with identifying the patterns because as you said there's, you know, it feels a little magical. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I think I actually just had a conversation not too long ago with Tristan Harris who um talks about design ethics and responsibility and so it's it's interesting to hear you say, you know, that if we if we can provide that kind of information to designers, they can design for better, right? For a better world, for a better place. Um, I think that's a movement we're seeing in general in the design world, which is amazing. I mean, we're thinking about ethics. We're thinking about social good. We're thinking about the effect that our designs, even even right now in this phase of technology that we're in, that's mostly about the screen. And, you mm-hmm. know, as David Rose would say, the flat black rectangle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're, we're kind of in that. And so it feels abstract, but it's real to people. It's changing their lives. And there's a certain responsibility that, that we have there. And I think there's sort of this, this second current going where we're trying to 
get people down the funnel and get them to convert. And there's the bottom line to think about. And wouldn't be there? Wouldn't it be good if there was some way that there's a convergence there? So right. It's not tricking people or forcing people or using a dark pattern in that sense. And so I, I think there's a lot of rumblings in you know the design world about these same topics, and it's really an exciting time to see that happening. It is. It is, and it's great to see so many people talking about it and and trying to figure it out. Um, you um, you wrote a piece about Generation Z the young generation, um, those under 17. Um, in it, you you talk about how they're so different from any other generation that has come before. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you're observing there. Yeah, well, it's interesting because when we look for trends, we usually focus on the newest thing. And for some people, that's products. For me, it's people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, part of my fascination with the with disease, I confess, comes from the fact that I have three daughters. and you know, I'm observing their sort of evolution with technology. Oh, wow. There's even an age gap because I have two that are tweens and then one that's littler. And I can see touch has had a major impact on their experience of technology and how quickly they become fluent and all those things. But, you know, I had this this great moment a couple of years ago. I took my oldest daughter. She asked me to go to the mall, and I hadn't been to the mall for years, you know. And I was like, "Wow, the mall? Are you sure? Can't we just shop online for stuff?" Just, no, I want to go, and I want you to take three of my friends. And I said, "Well, okay, I guess I'll get a gold star for this one." Right. <laughs> so, you know, I took them to the mall and kind of, you know, followed them around at a safe distance so I wouldn't bother them, and realize that they're using technology in a way that I don't see anyone over the age of 17 using technology. I mean, it's so integrated into everything they were doing. They were taking pictures, they were sharing, you know, with with a certain friend who couldn't make it, not sharing to others so they wouldn't feel left out. They're keeping all these outfits as options to make the case to their moms who had the credit cards. Um, you know, and then afterwards, we kind of reconvened at the food court, and they're comparing their purchases and doing all these teenage things, and spent really a good twenty minutes deciding, you know, what kind of flipogram they're going to make, what music, what account they're going to use, because they all have several different Instagram accounts, among many others. You know, who they would Snapchat something to, and I was like, "Wow, this is really fascinating." And so, when I got home, I asked my daughter if I, you know, could I talk to your friends more about this, and she's like. Mom, don't study me. <laughs> and, and I said, okay. So then, so that kind of set me off on on a new study where I talked to you know kids from pretty much about six years old to seventeen, and it's a fascinating generation. It's a huge generation, mm-hmm. huger than the boomers, huger than millennials, um, which is a little bit unsettling, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Why, you wonder, I guess, because everyone's having kids at all different ages, and it's all happening at once or something. Right. Like but, you know, they're also a generation that not only has grown up with technology, but has grown up with social media, um, has grown up with data being collected about them, and a, a kind of have grown up in not a great time. You know, it's not an economic boom. There's, you know, a lot of scary things happening in the world that they're, 
hyper aware of because they're participating in these grown up spaces. You know, in some ways, they're not so different. I mean, they want privacy from their parents (laughs) (laughs) and from their teachers. And that actually motivates a lot of them to learn about privacy controls, to set their controls, which is really hard, especially, you know, if you're talking about something like Facebook, which they're all still on for a variety of reasons. It's not <laughs> the old, it's not the old like person. Them, you know? Right. I, I've heard that before when somebody um, like one of my nieces will say, oh, you must be on Facebook because you're <laughs> of that age thinking, wow. Oh, I definitely had kids say like, oh, isn't that cute that you're trying to use Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, that's kind of the quintessential narrative that kids have that parents don't understand. And the extension of that is parents don't get technology. And of course, they don't want parents or teachers or other grownups in their business. And so, you know, that's, so they're learning about privacy. They're very conscious of privacy. They're very conscious of all the layers. And lots of them told me stories of learning the hard way about posting a picture of a sleepover they were at and somebody else feeling really left out Uh and they learned you know not to do that again and there's this ambivalence toward I know there's been a like a lot of press about dark social and going anonymous especially among this group but what I found is that they don't like it so much because it prompts all this bad behavior Mm -hmm. bullying and um uh, things that they're not really ready to handle yet mm-hmm. around, you know, sex and violence and things like that. So they really, you know, it's not so much anonymous, anonymous, but controlling all the levels. They're very aware of, you know, their nothing goes away on the internet and they want it to be private. At the same time, there's this weird tension because they don't really have a ton of curiosity about how it all works. Right? Hmm. I mean, I did talk to some kids who are programming. They love to create and make things. They're making programs. They're gifting each other, you know, things they made with technology, drawings or labels or whatever. But they don't want to get down under the hood. They're expecting it all to work hmm. and that they can work on sort of this meta level and be creative. So in other words, you know, the tools should be provided for them to be creative, be integrated into whatever the experience is. And so those were sort of their favorite things like games, you know, things that were not as much about levels and achievement as creative, you know, like a Minecraft or like Tokaboka games for the, for the little ones Mm -hmm. had a really strong appeal to this group because I think they're so, they're doers. They're really creative. Interesting generation. So, hmm. well, it's interesting too. The um, I think I shared this with you this morning. The the article about Monica uh, Rigotti, um, referring to data natives, you know, which she talks about digital natives, and then on to data natives who expect the world to be smart and adaptable. And I think I think that generation certainly has higher expectations of of how things should work. They definitely do. I mean, there's a frustration with all the kids I talk to about, you know, like the worst thing in the world is if there's no Wi-Fi, for sure. <laughs> and if something doesn't work, I mean, they're blaming somebody else and they're just, they just give up. You know, they're not, they're not going to um, tolerate it. Whereas, you know, if you're a little older, 
especially I see this among boomers, they'll tend to blame themselves if something goes wrong. Like, oh, I just don't understand technology. Oh, it's just not, you know, this is not my thing. Mm-hmm, right. It's completely the opposite story with this group. And they are, they're very, they're very savvy about their data and how it can be used to give them a better experience. They might not express it that way, but they expect mm-hmm. technology to know them as a person would know them on that on that kind of level. Boy, businesses have a lot to learn about that <laughs> and a lot of challenges. Indeed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've worked in, you know, in the design and, and data space. I'm curious if you have any advice for, for designers who are looking to add working with data to their skill set. Well, I think, you know, the, the first thing that all designers have going for them when they want to learn about data is that it's a field in flux and so is data science. So mm-hmm. we have that in common. I mean, there's no one standard or one thing you need to know, or you have to do it this way. Certainly there's in, in both fields, you know, various certifications and things you can learn, but I feel like, you know, the best way to get started and get your feet wet is to um, just start getting curious mm-hmm. about what it is you could learn. So the thing about, that's an interesting difference, I think, between design research and working with bigger data sets is with design research, you can really be kind of open and just let it happen and new, new exciting things will reveal themselves. With data, it's a little harder to get at that. I think that you almost have to go in with some questions in mind and use that at least as a starting point. Mm-hmm to exploring. So for instance, if you want to get started looking at analytics, you know, it's really easy to get lost in Google Analytics. Um, if you, there's so many things you can do. There's so many features, so many things to look at. And so you almost need to start with a question. I always look at the behaviors section of Google mm-hmm. Analytics first and use that as a starting point to get curious about other things. I think same goes for social media data. There's a lot of free tools out there to use to get started. And to me, that almost seems like the bridge between analytics, which is which is aggregated and anonymous, and design research, which is very, very personal. The social listening kind of comes in the middle because you can still hear the voices in it, but you can also see the big patterns too. Mm-hmm. Great, great. One final question. Um, are there people or products or companies that, that are catching your eye these days that are interesting to you? Well, this might sound a little bit silly, crazy. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I am really interested in all the technology around animals and the Internet of Animals, connecting sheep up to the Internet. We're connecting our pets up to try. And it's all, it's less command and control, and it's more trying to understand this world around us. And so I feel like that's been a really interesting evolution in the past years that we've been trying to understand, you know, the language of nature in a way, right? Understand how plants communicate with each other, with animals, how animals are thinking. Of course, we're all obsessed with our dogs. (laughs) I have dogs, so I'm... (laughs) I have one dog hooked up to whistle, (laughs) trying it out myself. And I just think that's really interesting and it gives me kind of this this it's hopeful technology in a way because it's like 
are curious about this thing. We want to learn more about this thing. And we're going to create technologies to, to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And so even though that's, that might seem a little bit crazy, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't. It's what's been catching my attention. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm a dog lover too. So, um, but right. You think you live with these, these animals and to, to be able to understand them better. It is fascinating. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed it. And next time, you know, I can ask you the question. Okay. <laughs> Pamela can be reached through her Twitter handle at Pam in the lab. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode.